Okay, a couple of announcements. <clears throat> First of all, we're planning to have a uh, uh, dinner on the grounds after church on Sunday, August the 7th. And the second thing, which is uh, uh, something that everybody should be praying for during the next uh, two or three, probably three weeks, is <clears throat> Camp Arete begins on the 17th of July. Is that correct, Jeff? Any, any announcements, anything? Yeah, I, I talked to Mark the other day. He said he probably wouldn't go because you're doing such a good job, you don't need him. <laughs> okay, so uh, you can pray for that. They've got 40-plus uh, kids, as he just said, and it's going to be a, a tremendous, uh, tremendous week. Charlie Clough's going to be the main speaker. Uh, there's two or three other pastors who are going to be there. Uh, as well, and so we really need to pray for, I'd say the three most important things is the kids can all get there, get home safely, that there aren't any injuries or accidents or anything of that nature that's serious. Uh, somebody always cuts their finger or gets a bloody nose or something from the altitude. But uh, And then the third thing would be that if any kids are there that aren't, aren't saved, that they would uh, clearly hear hear the gospel. So we can be in prayer for that. And I think that's the uh, only two announcements I'm aware of. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can uh, uh, get an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the Word. One thing that I did not announce, Sandy did get it in the uh, prayer list tonight, but uh, Taylor Williams was going to cover for me in a couple of weeks when I go on vacation, and he has had a recurrence of his uh, bladder cancer and has surgery next Monday. So be in prayer for Taylor uh, next uh, and his surgery next Monday that everything's going to go well and the doctors will be able to uh, take care of this. This first cropped up just before uh, <clears throat> he was to cover for me back in January last year, but he had the surgery far enough ahead of time to where he was still able to, able to cover for me. So uh, pray, be, be in prayer for Taylor. All right, let's bow our heads together. Go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we have you to come to in time of need and that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the path to you is directly open and each of us as believers in Jesus Christ are priests and we have direct access to your throne of grace. Father, this is such a tremendous privilege that we have that we can have this kind of fellowship with you and fellowship in prayer, fellowship around your word. 
And, Father, that we can bring these cares and needs before you and ask that you strengthen those who are facing various kinds of trials, that they may be able to face them with uh, with real joy and be a tremendous testimony for you. And, Father, especially we remember Taylor and his surgery next week and pray that you would guide the hands of the of the surgeons and that you would give them wisdom and skill at being able to treat him and dealing with this with his cancer and pray for him and his trust in you and his testimony that that would be uh, something that you can use uh, in those he comes in contact with. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would strengthen us, encourage us from your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, and as I pointed out when we began this study, in the first part of the chapter, Peter and John go to the temple. It is the uh, uh, the afternoon, it's the ninth hour, which is the time of prayer, and it is the time when um, they would go on a daily basis, the prayer time prior to the uh, evening offering. And as they enter the temple, they come to what is the text refers to as, if I have anything working here, hmm, there's something. Okay, let's try it again. There we go. They entered into that middle circle, which is the most likely candidate for the gate beautiful. It is between the courtyard of the Gentiles and that of the women, and this was also called the Nicanor Gate. And so apparently the beggar was out there, the lame man was out there begging for alms, and Peter healed him, not on the basis, as I pointed out last time, of the lame man's faith. He never showed, He's not expecting to be healed. He doesn't ask Peter and John to be healed. Uh, Peter just tells him, look at me, and then he says, uh, on the basis of the name of the Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then Peter reached down and grabbed his hand and pulled him up on his feet. And it's only after that that he expresses any faith towards God and praising God. So he's not saved because he's believing. One of those examples in Scripture where where you do, do not have faith by the individual for a healing. So this shows that faith in the individual was not always present in the in the New Testament. It was a, it was the purpose of healing was to announce the presence of the kingdom. Now this artwork that I've shown you in the past just to depict the uh, portico that surrounded the temple itself outside the courtyard of the Gentiles, which is the area where the people came when they heard of this tremendous miracle and they gathered out and filled up this space, and this would have been an enormous space where uh, several thousand people could gather, and Peter then uh, proclaimed a message. And it is while Peter is uh, proclaiming this message that he comes to the main point of the message in verse uh, 19. And verse 19 is the command. He lays it all out uh, in verses uh, 12 and forward, and he talks about the fact, why are you looking at this? Why are you guys so surprised? You should have expected this. Uh, very, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, an opening that expects and challenges the audience to think in terms of the fact that, that, uh, they've seen a number of miracles over the last six months. This is just another one and shouldn't surprise them. 
then he anchors what he is going to say in the Old Testament, that this is related to the God of the, the plan of God, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who uh, glorified his son, that you delivered up. And even though he says that they had delivered up Jesus, he's not blaming the Jews as Jews for their crucifixion of Jesus. And I pointed out last time, Acts 4.27, where in, in their prayer to God, the apostles pray, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, who is not Jewish, he was an Edomite, but he was appointed by Rome as the king of the Jews, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, that all of them were responsible for the death of Jesus. In other words, they represent the entire human race. And then Peter's focus is on the fact that what has happened is that, that the, uh, the primary leaders of Israel and most of the people denied Jesus, rejected his claim to be the Messiah, and when Pilate gave them the opportunity to choose a, a murderer, uh, Barabbas or Jesus, they rejected Jesus, chose Barabbas, and as a result, Jesus was crucified. And so again, in verse uh, 17, uh, Peter says, you did this in ignorance, as did your rulers. But, and here's where he shifts to talking about God, he says, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets. And so there's a focus here on all the prophets, that there is a unified testimony among the prophets. Now, when you look at this and listen to this from a Jewish perspective, Remember, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures were divided and organized into three sections. You had the first section, which was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. We also refer to that as the Pentateuch, from Penta meaning five. The Torah or the law, that's the foundation of the Old Testament. Then the second division was called the Nevi'im or the prophets, and that was composed of the former prophets, and the latter prophets. The former prophets were Joshua, Judges. In the Hebrew Bible, you have uh, Kings. We would divide that into First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, but that was just called Kingdoms. Well, in, in the Septuagint, it's called Kingdoms. And then you had um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, these were uh, uh, outside of uh, uh, Esther. These, these were all part of the former prophets. Then you had the latter prophets. The latter prophets were Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. Daniel was in the writings. And then you had the 12, the minor prophets we call them. And that was all in the prophets. Now, a prophet was someone who spoke for God, who represented God uh, to the people. And he stood in God's place announcing God's message to the people and in many cases uh, condemning the people because they had violated the law of God. So in some sense, the prophet also functioned as a, a prosecuting attorney, attorney from the uh, bench of God's uh, Supreme Court in heaven. And he would prosecute the people, as it were, on the basis of their violation, uh, violation of the law. So when Peter says this, he's not just talking about the prophets in terms of those who gave prophecy about Jesus but he is speaking of those who were the divine representatives 
who challenged the nation with their uh, disobedience uh, of the Mosaic law. And in doing that, the prophets always foretold a time when, in the future, when Israel would be removed from the land and they would go through discipline, be scattered among all the nations, and then there would be a restoration of the people back to the land and the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom. And so in terms of these these prophecies related to the Messiah, Peter said that Christ would suffer. Now, Christ is an English anglicized form of the Greek word Christos, which is means anointed one or appointed one. And Christos is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach for anointed one or appointed one. So the prophets announced that the Mashiach would suffer. They announced two things. There were messianic prophecies that talked about the glorious future rule and reign of the Messiah, and then there were others that talked about the fact that the the Messiah would suffer. They talked about the uh, crown, and they talked about the cross. What happened in the first century is Jewish leadership was so focused on uh, the Messiah coming with a, as the ruler to overthrow Rome that they completely ignored all these prophecies related to the suffering Messiah or the cross. So they put the crown before the cross rather than the cross before the crown. And I pointed out last time a number of prophecies here that we find. These are just about ten prophecies, and there are many, many more. But these ten prophecies indicate that the Messiah would suffer and how he would suffer. At the bottom I have uh, three chapters or three passages that focus on the suffering of the Messiah, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and then Daniel 9:26. the Messiah would be cut off. Now, if you take these ten prophecies, and there was a uh, <clears throat> uh, several books have been written on this where uh, <clears throat> mathematicians have figured out the probabilities of the, all of these prophecies related to Jesus coming true. Over 300 prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus at the first, first advent. And there were many, many more prophecies in the uh, Old Testament that related to his second coming but have not been fulfilled yet. But over 300 were fulfilled the first time. Now think about that, 300. We're only going to talk about 10. The probability of 10 prophecies coming true is equivalent to filling the state of Texas up with silver dollars to a height of four feet. So you just think about it, up to about your waist or your armpits, depending on how tall you are, and you figure out that if you filled up the whole state of Texas and you just put a mark on one of those silver dollars and then you stir it all up everywhere from El Paso to, to Beaumont, that's 900 miles, everywhere from Brown, Brownsville all the way up to um, Muleshoe, and then from uh, then back across to uh, Tyler and to, Shre- uh, and to uh, um, Texarkana, that covers a lot of territory. And if you put that four feet deep, just think in this room, if you, pile, if you just fill this room with silver dollars, how impossible it would be to just find one, just blindfolded, reach in and grab a marked one. That, that boggles our mind, but we're talking about filling the whole state. It's impossible. And that's only for ten prophecies to be fulfilled 
in the, in the correct time, correct order when Jesus came. So we're talking about 300. So if it's impossible for it to happen with 10 prophecies, well, it is 30 times impossible for it to happen for 300. And yet 300 prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. So, so <clears throat> Peter is making a very strong case to his Jewish audience based on a shared now, this is important, based on a shared foundation, and that is their belief that the Hebrew Scriptures are from God and are true. He doesn't have to worry about an audience that doesn't believe uh, that, that the Torah was inspired by God. Everybody there believed that God revealed his word to them. They didn't have any any <clears throat> liberal Protestant theologians in the crowd. They didn't have any Reformed Jews or conservative Jews or Reconstructionist Jews. They didn't have any neo-Orthodox or neo-evangelicals there who didn't believe in the inspiration and fallibility of Scripture. He had an audience of people who believed that the Hebrew Scriptures were the very Word of God and God spoke to them. And so on that foundation, he can go to these prophecies and say, see, these prophecies are all fulfilled in Jesus, which is how he finishes verse 18. And then he comes to the point, the challenge. He says, repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, as I have pointed out before when we have, <clears throat> leading up to this verse, and back when we were in a similar passage where the word repent was used, back in Acts chapter 2 at the end of Peter's uh, uh, day of Pentecost sermon, where in Acts um, 2.42 he said, or excuse me, Acts 2.38 uh, he said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's saying the same thing in both of these verses. He's offering the kingdom, and he offers it on the term that Moses used in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2, which is telling the Jews that when they had been scattered to all the nations on the earth, and they would turn back to him, then he would restore them to the land. But the restoration, the full restoration to the land was based on the fact that they turned back to him away from these false gods and away from these idols. And that as a result of that, God would forgive the nation of their sins. So in Acts 2.38, he used the word afiemi related to forgiveness of sins. And here he uses a different word, but one that means pretty much the same thing, something being wiped out or canceled out. Now, people get really confused over this word repent, and that's because down through the centuries, this has been used as a salvation or justification verse that before you can be saved, you have to repent of your sins. And if you don't repent of your sins then you can't be saved. And so the word here for repent means to repent of your sins. Now, there's a couple of things that you always need to remember about this because somebody's going to tell this to you. You say, well, what about repenting? Brother, we need to repent. Well, first of all, the word repent does not in the Greek does not have a any kind of emotional attitude. It doesn't talk about penance in the sense of doing something uh, 
that somehow uh, assuages your guilt complex and also satisfies God that you're serious about doing business with him with regard to your sin. Uh, that's not what the word means. Metanoeo, as we see here in this slide, metanoeo has the idea of changing your mind. It's often translated repent, but repent doesn't, if you look it up, the word repent up in an English dictionary, it has the idea of remorse or sorrow. But that's not what's present in the Greek word. The Greek word metanoeo is used by Paul over in 2 Corinthians and is distinguished from another word he uses in the same context, metamelamai. Now, metamelamai means to be sorry for something. That's an emotive, emotional word. But metanoeo is a thought word. It means to change your mind about something. But the interesting thing about metanoeo is it's not used at all in the Gospel of John. And everybody seems to think, or most Christians seems to think, that if there's any one book in all of the Old Testament that was written to get unsaved people saved, it was the Gospel of John. Because John says in uh, John chapter John chapter 30, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have eternal life. Now, it seems to me that his stated purpose is salvation. But John never mentions repentance. So if repentance is a prerequisite for faith, and I mean this way, repentance, not just changing your mind, but that sorrow for sin and that remorse over sin, if that's a prerequisite to salvation, then nobody can get saved reading the gospel of John. So right away, that's your your first main argument is that metanoeo really means to change your mind. It doesn't mean to feel sorry for sin. It doesn't have anything to do with sin. Second thing is that repentance is never mentioned in, in the Gospel of John. And I noted last week when we were studying in Romans that Paul only uses the word about seven times in all of, all of his epistles. So it's not a very important concept for the Apostle Paul either. And then the third thing is that in the, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God, um, God is the one who repents more than anybody else. In the Old Testament, or for example, in the King James Version, let's just use that because the King James Version will translate two different words in Hebrew, repent. In the King James Version, the word repent occurs 46 times in the Old Testament, and 37 of those 46 times, God is the one repenting. Now, if repenting has something to do with sin, then we've got a real problem because God doesn't sin. So the word repent, first of all, doesn't have anything to do with sin. Secondly, it just has to do with changing your mind. And in the Old Testament, when it's used of God, it it doesn't mean that God changed his mind. It's, it's that from our perspective, it looks like that's what's happening. God is simply adjusting his plan because of human failure. And so he's going to operate on plan B or C or D. Actually, I think it's on triple X, triple Y, and triple Z by this time. But he's way down the road because God, is, and just from our perspective, it looks like that. But God in his omniscience knows whatever will take place. And so he really isn't changing his mind. It just appears to us 
as if he has changed his mind. So it's what's called an anthro, uh, anthropopathism, where an, an attribute of, of man is ascribed to God to explain something that uh, God doesn't actually possess, but in order to explain his plans and policies to us so that we can uh, gain an understanding of what God is doing. So Peter comes here, and he's challenging them, and he's using a word that is loaded. It's got so much baggage from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, that they should be hearing this in light of what Moses said, that until you turn, God is not going to restore all the Jews to the land or bring in the kingdom. So he says, repent, therefore, and be converted. It's a double whammy. He's using the two primary words that mean change and turn that are used to translate the Hebrew word from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2. So it's not an emotive word. It's not repenting from sin. It's changing your mind and turning away from idols and to God. And the emphasis is on turning back to God. So he says, repent, therefore, and be converted, or which is the King James way of translating it. It simply says, repent, therefore, change your mind, and turn. That would be the best way to translate it. Change your mind about the Messiah and turn, or actually change your mind about Jesus, therefore, and turn for the purpose. And here we have an infinitive that is expressed here for blotted out. It's an aorist passive infinitive with a an a, a, a ace preposition here indicating a purpose clause. Uh, change your mind, therefore, and turn for the purpose that your sins be blotted out. It's a passive because we don't blot out our sins or erase them. God does. And we simply receive the benefit of that action. So repent or turn, or excuse me, change your mind and turn, therefore, that your sins may be eradicated, erased, that's the idea, blotted out, so that produces a result, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, we'll come back and talk about the times of refreshing. I want to cover through verse 21 and then talk about a key term there, and then we'll come back to times of refreshing to understand what he's saying here. But so you know, he's talking, he's using a term that is related to the millennial kingdom which is a time of rest in the Old Testament, or uh, refreshing. So, <clears throat> change your mind, therefore, and turn, in order that your sins will be eradicated, with the result that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The millennial kingdom will only come if Jesus is on the earth. Now, here's an important point I just want to reassert, reaffirm for everybody. You don't have a kingdom without Israel, all the Jews, being back in the land and a nation Israel. No kingdom unless Israel is in the land. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen with 30%, 40%, 50% of the land. So this isn't a kingdom. Uh, there were more Jews living in the diaspora during the first century than lived in in Israel, lived in Judea, lived in Galilee. So they're still scattered from the scattering from 586. Only a portion from, from Babylon moved back to, to Israel. So you still have a minority of Jews living in the land. 
So <clears throat> the kingdom isn't there unless the Jews, all the Jews, are back in the land, number one. Number two, the kingdom isn't there unless Jesus is there. That's real important. But what does this verse say? That the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Not his presence in heaven, not his presence spiritually, but his physical presence in the land. So right away we come across this, this insane teaching that we find uh, popular among theologians today because they don't understand the kingdom and they don't understand the new covenant and they don't understand dispensational theology or they've rejected it uh, because they don't understand it, that the kingdom doesn't come until Israel is back in the land and Jesus is there physically and present on the throne of David. He's not on the throne of David at all. Now, this is what this aberration from Dallas Seminary teaches, that uh, Jesus is now on the throne of David at the right hand of the Father. Well, n- there's no way you could read any passage in the Old Testament and think of David's throne, David's kingdom from the Davidic covenant as being in heaven and not on the earth, no more than you would think that when God told Abraham, I'm going to give you a piece of property, it's going to be bordered by the Euphrates River on the north and northwest. It's going to be bordered by the river of Egypt to the south and southeast. And it's going to be bordered by the Mediterranean on the uh, or south and southwest, rather. It's going to be bordered by the Mediterranean on the west. And this is the land I'm giving you. Nobody who read that would ever think, hmm, he's just talking about heaven. But see, that's how covenant theologians interpret that now because since the Jews rejected Jesus, all of that really became heaven. God just sort of waved his magic wand over it and said abracadabra and that shifted from being a physical piece of real estate to a spiritual real estate in heaven. And that's essentially what what they have done. But Peter tells us there's no kingdom without the presence of the Lord. Now, the other thing to remember is if you don't have a king present, you don't have a kingdom, number one. Number two, if you don't have all the Jews back in the land, you don't have a kingdom. Number three, if you don't have, if you don't have the kingdom with the Jews in the land, you can't have the new covenant. And we studied that back in our study in, in Hebrews that the new covenant comes when God restores the Jews to the land. That's when he initiates the new covenant. The cross was the foundation sacrifice for the new covenant, but the new covenant doesn't go into effect until you have the kingdom with the Jews back in the land and Jesus on the throne, and it's a literal kingdom. So we're not there yet. That's all future. Okay, back to our passage. Your sins may be blotted out. What does it mean to blot out your sins? Well, this same word is used in another passage, and that's in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Now, this is a passage that I've spent some time on in the past. We'll spend a lot more time on the future in our study on Sunday morning in Colossians. But it's very clear. This, to me, is one of the most significant passages on forgiveness and what was done at the cross of any passage in the New Testament. Paul starts off and he uses a participle. He says, you being dead. Actually, it's best understood as a temporal participle, which expresses the condition 
of every one of us at the point that we believed in Jesus, just before we trusted in Christ. You, when you were dead, it's an aorist participle, it's past tense. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. That's the main verb. So the action of being dead precedes the action of the main verb. So it's when you were dead before you were made alive. He has made you alive together with him, this for him and his readers that had happened when they trusted in Jesus. And then in the English it says, having forgiven. That ing indicates it's translating a participle. But its participle has a number of different nuances. Now you have to sort of guess your way through those. It's, 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 uh, educated guessing because most of the nuances of a participle don't fit. Usually only one or two do and it's pretty clear from the context which one it should be. So when Paul says having forgiven, it's a causal participle. Because he forgave you, he made you alive together with him because he had already, it's an aorist participle again, which means the action of the participle precedes the action of the main verb. The main verb is also in the past tense. He made you alive. But before he made you alive, he had to forgive you of all trespasses. And the word there for forgive is charizomai, which is also used as as an uh, economic context of wiping out or eradicating a debt. So the idea of because he had already See, that picks up the idea of the of that aorist participle that precedes the action of that aorist verb. He had already forgiven you or graced you out by eradicating all your trespasses. Then we have another participle at the beginning of verse 14. Again, it's an aorist participle, which means the action of wiping out here has to have preceded being made alive. So sometime before you were regenerated, your your transgressions were wiped out because he wiped out, and that's our verb here, the same verb that's used here in uh, in uh, Acts chapter uh, th- three, verse nineteen, for blotting out. Because he blotted out, wiped out, had already wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us. When did he do that? He did it, we learned from the last part of the verse, when, because he nailed it to the cross. So it didn't happen. Your sins in this verse weren't blotted out when you trusted in Jesus. They weren't blotted out when you were regenerated or just before you were regenerated. They're blotted out when they were nailed to the cross. When G, In 33 AD, your sins were blotted out. It's no longer, that's not the issue anymore. You're still spiritually dead. That's the problem. And you're still minus R. You still lack all righteousness. That's the other problem. You can't get into heaven unless you are righteous and unless you are regenerate and not spiritually dead and unless the penalty is paid. What Jesus did on the cross was he did that last one. He paid the penalty, which only he could do. But that still left us experientially spiritually dead, and it also left us it also it left us spiritually dead, and it left us uh, without a new nature. So we're spiritually dead. We need to be regenerate, and we are um, we are 
we lack perfect righteousness. So we have to have the righteousness problem solved, and we have to have the spiritual death problem solved, which is solved with regeneration. And so what we see here in Colossians 2, 13 is the, and 14 is the use of this word blotting out to refer to one of the four kinds of forgiveness that we have in Scripture. Now, let me remind you of what those are. The first one I'm calling forensic forgiveness. This applies to everybody because what Paul says there in Colossians 2.14 is that our sins are blotted out when they're nailed to the cross. So in 33, all sins for all humanity are blotted out. But that doesn't make you saved because, like I said, you still have a problem. You're still spiritually dead and you lack righteousness. The second problem, or the second way in which forgiveness is used is uh, positional. When we are in Christ, we are forgiven. So at the point of salvation, when we trust in Jesus, then that forensic forgiveness is actually credited to our account because of our position in Christ. Third, we have experiential forgiveness. When we sin, we're out of fellowship. And when we confess our sins, we're experientially forgiven. And then the fourth category is relational, when we forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. So those are the four categories. Now, what we're talking about in Colossians 2.14 is a forensic forgiveness that applies to all that occurred at the cross. What we're talking about here in uh, Acts 3.19 is the blotting out in terms of their what we would call positional for the Jews by turning to Jesus. So what Peter is saying here, he, he, notice this isn't a justification verse per se. It's implied there, but he's addressing them as, in, I mean, he's addressing them in terms of the Old Testament promises. He said, you have to turn and accept, turn back to God, accept Jesus as the Messiah, so that what? So that he can send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. So, there has to be a turning of the nation to God so that he can send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, proclaimed to you before, verse 21, whom heaven must receive, that's in the ascension of Christ, his glorification at the right hand of the Father, whom heaven must receive until the time of the restoration of all things. So we have a chronology here now. The chronology is that first, Israel has to turn and accept Jesus as the Messiah. Second thing that happens, that has to happen before the restoration of all things, which is the kingdom. And this whole process, Peter then says, was spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Going all the way back to Abel, this has been the message. And it's been refined and expanded upon all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures, all the way up to the time of Jesus. And now Peter is saying this is fulfilled. So the key focal point of verse 21 is the time of restoration of all things. What in the world does that mean, the time of restoration of all things? The Greek word here is a noun, apokatastasis, apokatastasis, and it means the restoration of all things and renovation of all things. The verb form is apakathistemi, apakathistemi, and that verb is used, we've seen it already, 
that's used in Acts 1, verse 6. When Jesus has been teaching the apostles about what? About the kingdom of God. That's what Acts 1 started off with. He taught them all these things during that period of time between the resurrection and the ascension. He taught them about the kingdom of God. And then when he's getting ready to ascend to heaven, uh, what do the disciples say? They, they come together and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They understand that the kingdom's not here yet. Are you going to restore it at this time? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But in Acts 3.21, Peter says, you, you, the Jews, have to repent and turn so that the times of refreshing can come, the times of restoration and the kingdom can be restored and the restoration of all things. So what in Acts chapter 3, which is a week or two weeks after Pentecost, it's very clear from Peter that they're not into even a little bit of the kingdom because in order for the kingdom to come, they have to, the Jews have to turn and accept Jesus. And when they do, then the times of refreshing will come. And then the times of re- restoration of all things will happen. But the time of refreshing and the time of restoration doesn't happen until after Jesus comes. So no Jesus on the earth, no kingdom. Now, this is really important for a number of people who are getting into that already not yet view of the kingdom and being suckered into a lot of really distorted uh, teaching about the future because it's not just about the future. It always ricochets back in terms of their understanding of the church and the understanding, and then it impacts their understanding of the spiritual life of the church. I remember one year back in about 1989, or so I was in the sem- in, in the library at Dallas Theological Seminary back in the stacks looking for something, and I ran into Daryl Bach. Daryl Bach is now their bright and shining uh, special uh, studies professor of, of New Testament. And Daryl Bach and Craig Blazing, who was a professor of mine at the time, I think, for a course on dispensationalism, were the two of the three architects of of uh, progressive dispensationalism. And at the time, that was all new, and it was a huge controversy, and everybody was talking about it. And the whole concept of progressive dispensationalism is built on this idea of the kingdom is already here, but not yet. Now, that's always kind of confusing. It's here in some ways, but not fully. That's what they mean. It's already here, but not not fully here. Now give you a little history. There was a theology professor, a New Testament professor, out at um, Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary, when it was founded, was a great school, named after a great evangelist named Charles Fuller, who was before Billy Graham. And so you have Fuller Evangelical Seminary out in, uh, out in Southern California, out in the, uh, I think it's in Pasadena. And they, uh, George Eldon Ladd taught there, and he uh, was a post-trib premillennialist. And he floated this idea, this trial balloon of an already not yet kingdom, and he's rejected a pre-trib rapture, and he's in some sort of quasi-dispensationalism, and he's trying to reach a uh, rapprochement, which means basically let's find a compromise with uh, covenant theology and amillennialism. 
So that's the background of already not yet. And then this got picked up by these guys at Dallas Seminary and said, okay, if we're already in the kingdom, if we use that concept, then we can try to bring about this merger between dispensational theology and covenant theology. And they went into passages like like uh, this passage and some others, uh, passages in Acts 2 talking about Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and they interpreted those passages the same way all millennialists did, and that is that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sat down on the throne of David, which is pure spiritualizing. That's allegorizing scripture. That's not a literal interpretation. But by so so one of the big problems that we had with progressive dispensationalism was it came up it had to invent its own hermeneutic its own way of interpreting which they called a complementary hermeneutic and I'm not even about to go into that but they had to invent their own hermeneutic in order to come up with their screwball conclusions but it shows that the root of this teaching goes back to this already not yet view of George Eldon Ladd well that's also a view of N.T. Wright. And there have been two or three men pastors within the doctrinal church movement, some of whom you know, some people here have children, friends, in-laws, outlaws, whatever, going to those congregations, getting relatively screwed up by hearing this already not yet stuff. And it is not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible shows, and this is one of those key passages that makes it very clear that the Jews must accept Jesus as the Messiah. They must change their mind and turn before the times of refreshing can come, before the restoration of all things. So you don't have a kingdom in at all until that happens. You don't have it a little bit. You don't have a little bit of the new covenant. You don't have this progressive development. See, that's where the idea of progressive dispensationalism comes from. You get this progressive entry of the kingdom down through history. So this isn't it. The apostles understood this. They asked, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And Jesus says, no, period. And now by Acts 3, Peter understands this. It's not coming now until you change your mind and turn to Jesus. Now, this is even more clear in Acts 15. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Now, here's a little back, background on Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 describes what is known as the Jerusalem Conference. This is when the apostles all got together to try to figure out how to solve some, a problem that was causing a lot of disturbance uh, within the church. Remember, at this time, the vast majority of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ were Jewish. They weren't Gentile. Uh, Paul has only gone out on his first missionary journey. And so back in Jerusalem, back in Judea, the issue is, well, what are we going to do with all these Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need, are they going to be allowed into the synagogue? They had practical questions. If they come to Jerusalem, are we going to let them in the synagogue? Do they get to come past the beautiful gate into the temple, into the courtyard of the women in the inner courtyard? How are we going to handle all this? What is required of a Gentile to convert to Christianity? Is there anything from the law that is applied to him? And so they have this meeting of the, of the Jerusalem council. And the issue really is, what's the connection 
What's the relation between these Gentile Christians and the Jews? What's happening in God's plan? Now, when they uh, heard Peter talk about how God was working among them, and Peter relates what had happened with Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10 and how God is working a new work among the Gentiles, and they hear from Paul and Barnabas about what God did with them on their first missionary journey. That's in verse 12. Verse 13, we, we read, after they all became silent, because they're all thinking about this, what in the world is happening? James answered and said, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take what? Pay attention to that verse. To take out of them a people for his name. Now he's not, notice he doesn't say he's going to take out for them a people who are going to be Jewish. But he's, he's doing something new, and, and James recognizes he's going to take out of the Gentiles a people for his name, a second people other than the Jews. And then he says in verse 15, and with this the words of the prophets agree. So he goes back into the Old Testament to document this, and he goes to, uh, he goes to Joel, or excuse me, Amos. He goes to Amos chapter 9. Verses, verse primarily 11, but 11 and 12. It kind of modifies 12 based on the Septuagint. And he quotes it. He says, after this, I will return. Now, that's not exactly what Amos said. So let me take, go to the next slide. How did Amos begin the verse? On that day. See, Amos is talking about the Lord's, the day of the Lord. And he's focusing on that. And so he's been in all the way through chapter, chapter nine, he's been talking about this future conflagration and judgment on the nations. And he says, on that day, when that judgment on the nations occurs, so let's go back to 15, 16, the Holy Spirit causes, uh, James to restate the verse. The state now is after this. After what? After God has taken out a people for his name from among the Gentiles. Ah, we're getting a little greater understanding now of what's going on. In Acts chapter 1, are you going to establish the kingdom now? Jesus says, not for you to know the times and the seasons. Acts chapter 3, Peter is pretty clear that the Jews have to change their mind and turn and accept Jesus as the Messiah before the times of refreshing will come. And if they do that, then he will come and they will have their presence. But now by Acts chapter 15, it's that God is doing a work among the Gentiles, bringing out a new people for his name, and it's only after he does that that he will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Now the tabernacle, the term tabernacle of David is just, it's the dwelling of David, it's from the... um, uh, Greek word skene, the dwelling of David, which is a picture of the Jewish state, the Jewish nation, uh, based on the Davidic covenant. So the tabernacle of David, the house of David, has fallen down. You can't point to somebody out there saying, he's the son of David. He's the heir on the throne. It's fallen down. It's collapsed. The nation is out, uh, going to be out under discipline. So he says that he will return after he has built another 
group of people for his name from among the Gentiles. After that, he will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David. That is the house of Judah and the house of Israel, which has fallen down. God said, I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name or all the nations, the word that's translated ethnos, ethnoi can be Gentiles or nations, all the nations who are called by name, even all the nations or the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. This should be translated Gentiles here. This is a statement, a quote from Amos 9.11. On that day which comes after the day of the Lord, which is at the end of the events of the day of the Lord, actually. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So what's he saying? Is There's got to be a process. There's going to be something that intervenes between now and the restoration of the nation. And there's a calling out of the Gentiles. Now, One other passage talking about these times of refreshing is what Paul alludes to in Romans 8, 22 and 23. Paul there states, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The whole creation, what we call nature, is all under uh, the judgment of God. We have earthquakes, hurricanes, global cooling, global warming, all kinds of things going on, and all of that is in droughts. All these things are because the creation has been radically changed by sin and is under divine judgment. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for what? The adoption, the redemption of our body. Now, what Paul says in this passage is that the creation awaits the manifestation of the sons of God so that the times of healing or redemption will come to the creation. So that's the times of refreshing will come. Now, this terminology actually comes out of the Old Testament, Isaiah 28, verse 12. In Isaiah 28, verse 12, we read, To whom he said, This is the rest which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. Now, in Isaiah 28, we have a really interesting chapter. I'm not going to get sidetracked and run us all the way through the chapter, but I want to hit the highlights because this is this is one of those interesting chapters that people often misread or misinterpret uh, simply because they don't always know. If you're reading through Isaiah, you, you don't necessarily catch when the, the person talking shifts. Isaiah 28, just like Amos 9, is a condemnation of the northern kingdom of Israel. Isaiah and Amos operated at about the same time. Isaiah is in the south, though. Amos is in the north, or in the Hebrew, it's Amos, uh, is in the north. And so there is a, a rebuke by Isaiah in Isaiah 28 of the northern kingdom. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. The tribe of Ephraim was in the north. And Ephraim also stood also stood as a title for the whole northern kingdom. Woe to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. They were in their last stage of grace before judgment and the opportunity of prosperity, 
before God would bring the judgment from the Assyrians. And so there's this warning uh, to them. And then Isaiah presents his condemnation to them, uh, again, using the imagery of drunkenness in verse 7. Isaiah speaking in Isaiah 28, 7, and 8. Then in verse 9 and 10, the false teachers respond with their uh, sarcasm. And then Isaiah throws it back on them in verses 11 through 13. And so when we look at this, Isaiah condemns them, again, using the imagery of drunkenness, said they also, that is, these false prophets and leaders in the north, have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. They're drunk. They're into, we would say today, they're into all the pleasure drugs because all they're about is their own personal pleasure, their own personal power, their own personal uh, uh, success. They don't care about the people. They've erred through wine, through intoxicating drink, or out of the way. The priests and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. What God is picturing here is basically the teaching in 99.9% of universities in the United States of America and the world is that they're drunk on their own sense of self-importance and their own arrogance and what they're teaching in terms of human viewpoint is just vomit and filth. And they come back and they say, so you think you know so much, Isaiah? The real sarcasm in verses 9 and 10. And they come back and they say, well, who will he teach knowledge to? He thinks he knows so much. And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just wean from milk? He's going to teach these little infants? And he says, and then they imitate him. They mock what he was saying. And that's verse 10. A lot of people don't understand that when they read verse 10. They think, oh, this is great. Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. You're a little, they're a little. Isn't that great? But that's not how they're saying it. They say, they're saying it almost like a mocking little rhyme. Precept upon precept, precept upon precept. They're just going, oh, how boring. Precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little. And then he throws it back on him and announces judgment. This is an important passage, verse 11. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. Now, that's the verse that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 for the purpose of tongues. It's a sign of judgment to a nation. And so Isaiah announces that, that when the Assyrians come, you're going to hear this foreign language, and that's a sign that God is bringing judgment upon you. And then... Verse 12, that's our verse where we get this idea of of refreshing. So uh, what uh, Isaiah is saying, for with stammering lips and another tongue, he, that is God, will speak to this people. You're going to hear truth from a Gentile language. And to whom he said, now he goes on, this is the rest which you may cause the weary to rest. Now, Isaiah is the one he's talking to here, and the message of Isaiah is the message that if you're going to have the rest of God, which is a term for the kingdom, then you have to trust in God and turn away from these idols and all this false teaching. To whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing So this is the message of Isaiah. From Isaiah 2, he's talking about the future kingdom. 
This is his message. He's offering the refreshing. That's a term that summarizes the kingdom. It's this word that I have up on the screen, the Greek word, margea. And it means to rest or repose, and it's a time of relaxation. And verse 13 then he says, again, using the lines correctly, he says, but the word of the Lord was given to them precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Remember, God is one who told Isaiah, when you preach the word, it's people are going to either accept it or they're going to re- reject it. They're either going to act on it or react against it. But you preach the word, what we're seeing here is that they're going to react against it. And there's nothing harder than to be a prophet or a preacher to people who react all the time to, to what you're saying. So this is this is what Isaiah says in these verses is that the message that was given to him is a message related to the future time of rest that the Messiah would come, and yet it was rejected. So what's the point of of, uh, back to Acts 2? We need to wrap up. We still have one critical verse to look at, but we won't get there tonight. And that is uh, back in Acts chapter 3. He says, Change your mind, therefore, and turn in order that your sins may be eradicated. That is, the sins of the nation Israel. He is addressing them as a corporate unit. So that the times of refreshing may come until your sins are dealt with as a nation. The times of refreshing can't come. No national forgiveness, no kingdom. No national forgiveness, no new covenant. We're not there yet at all. And you need to turn so that he may send Jesus Christ. Now, we saw from Acts chapter 15 that he's not going to send Jesus until he's called out for himself a people from among the Gentiles. So this time of turning is sometime in the future. But he says you have to turn so that he can send Jesus, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which is until the time of the kingdom which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll hit the last quote he has from the Old Testament, which is from Deuteronomy chapter 18 and is expressed in verses 22 and 23. So next time we'll probably get close to wrapping up chapter 3 and getting into chapter uh, getting into chapter 4. But I want you to notice how he's ground, grounded everything he said in the Old Testament. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you can't understand the New Testament. And if you don't understand the Old Testament, you can't understand the messianic message, which is that God promised an anointed one who would come and would do exactly what Jesus did and die on the cross and suffer and die for the sins of the world. It's stated again and again and again, over 300 times in the Old Testament, you have prophecies related to Jesus and at least 100 prophecies related to his suffering uh, that would come uh, for the world and paying for the iniquities of us all. Father, with our, we thank you for this time that we've had tonight and to study your word, to be reminded of your plan and purpose, that you still have a plan and purpose for Israel, you have a plan and purpose for the church, and these are not the same, and that, Father, we continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and that peace of Jerusalem ultimately points to a future kingdom, the refreshing of all things, 
and the restoration of all things and the times of refreshment that they might come. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study tonight. Help us to understand it, and may our faith be strengthened, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.